everyone, and welcome to the MTG Goldfish Podcast. This is Seth, probably better known as Saffron Olive, and I'm joined today by Richard, owner of MTG Goldfish. How are you doing today, Richard? Hey, Seth. How's it going? Uh, doing pretty well. Excited. We got a lot of stuff going on. We're kind of over the holiday lull, I think. We had a couple of dead weeks where we were off, and now we've kicked into high gear as far as magic stuff. We got the full Rivals of Ixalan spoiler. We have a modern pro tour coming up, which is leading to some rumblings and grumblings in the pro community that we wanted to talk about. We have a banned and restricted announcement coming up next week, so we wanted to mention that. And then we have a ton of fish mail, so we have a pretty packed full cast this weekend. So, Richard, before we jump into the cards from Rivals of Ixalan that we didn't get to last week... We got the full set. What's your overall perception or feeling on the set now that we got the entire thing? I really like it. We got all 196 cards over five days last week, so not too much time to digest everything, but lots of tribal synergies, lots of splashy mythics. I don't know how standard it is. I I don't want to lead the podcast with bannings, but uh, if you ignore energy for a second, this set looks really good. There's just a lot of tribal cards to kind of make all the tribes click so i i think the perception on rivals has been pretty good people seem to be really liking the set the art's phenomenal as well so i think this is a pretty strong set Uh, we can talk about the cards in a second but overall uh, i'm liking what i see yeah, somehow they managed to make the small set of Ixalan block, Rivals of Ixalan, the better tribal set than the big set, I think. This is the set that has just all the tribal goodies that we were hoping for. It's got the cheap lords. It's got the stuff that kind of fills in a lot of the missing pieces of the tribe. We had this like weird foundation from Ixalan where the tribes were like, somewhat good, some better than others. Dinosaurs and pirates, probably the best. But each tribe was missing key things that was keeping it from really being able to compete in standard. And now I did like a bunch of brewing with the tribes over the weekend, and it really feels like discounting energy and the power level stuff there, it really feels like each tribe has basically every piece they need to do what the tribe's trying to do. You got merfolk lores, you got pirate one drops, you got some dinosaurs to fill out the curve and some dinosaur ram spells. So it feels like wizards really nailed it with filling out the gaps in the tribes to hopefully make them playable. But the big question is, can anything compete with energy? But we we don't need to get into that yet. We'll talk about BNR stuff uh, later in the cast. So we want to talk about some of the individual cards because last cast was Monday, so we only had one official day of spoilers, which means we got like 170 Rifles of Ixalan cards since we last casted. So Richard, why don't you take it away with some of the new exciting cards we got from Rifles of Ixalan? All right, we're we're just going to go down the mythic list right now. Uh, And each tribe got a mythic, so it's actually pretty interesting. Uh, So we'll start off with uh, a dinosaur, Trap Jaw Tyrant, three white white, 5-5 Dinosaur. Enrage. Whenever Trap Jaw Tyrant is dealt damage, exile target creature and opponent controls until the Tyrant leaves the battlefield. I don't know what to make of this card. On one hand, it's got a reasonable body. 5-5 for 5 is not bad. It's really hard to chump block, because if you chump block, you lose your creature and you get something else, your best creature exiled from the Enrage ability. Hard to kill with damage. On the other hand... It dies to cast outs and Veraska's contempt, and it doesn't do anything right away. Like you're playing it and just hoping it lives, and you got a pretty reasonable threat. What do you think about this one, Richard? Is this like a standard card, or is it just a another dinosaur to fill out your enraged dino commander deck? 
it's it, it's not Palookanos. I, I don't know. You, you can get four mana of five fives nowadays. So it's it's okay, and it really stops the chump blocks, but I, I don't know that it's worth it. So if the opponent only has one creature, uh, it's going to die anyways because it's chump blocking. Uh, if they have two creatures, one that's good enough, you know, that you actually want to exile, they'll probably just team block with it. So in terms of using like some kind of fair use of this enrage, it seems pretty bad. If the creature is big enough that you want to remove it, they'll probably block and kill your tyrant anyway. So how to abuse this card is to actually uh, trigger enrage without going into combat. And that requires you to build around the card, and this was a 5-mana 5-5, five five, like was that even worth it? So so no, I don't think it's strong enough for standard. I, I could see it being played somewhere, but I don't think... It's one of those, you know, staple beaters that we see in standard, Pelucranos or something like that. Uh, it's just not strong enough. Commander, eh. I mean, if it was exile target opponent, each uh, target creature each opponent <laughs> controls would be pretty good. But going through the hoops to get enraged just to remove one creature and it has no protection. If it had hexproof or something, it might be better. So I don't even see this used in commander either. The other thing is... The creatures come back. If it was just exile a creature, I would be a lot more excited about it. But the fact that you're potentially get like two or three creatures under it, you know how painful it is to get your cast out or your oblivion ring blown up and your opponent gets their thing back? Imagine getting this blown up and your opponent just getting their entire board back with like three or four creatures. So there's a lot of risk because of how it's worded. Even if you exile a few things, eventually your opponent's going to find the cast out, find the Veraska's Contempt, some sort of actual hard removal spell, and then everything comes flooding back onto the battlefield. So there's definitely a lot of risk to playing it in any format. And you also need to exile your opponent's creatures, so no blink shenanigans uh, on your board if that's what you wanted to do. Uh, so next card, we have Twilight Prophet, 2 black black, 2 4, creature, vampire, cleric, uh, also mythic rare, flying, ascend, at the beginning of your upkeep, if you have the city's blessing, reveal the top card of your library and put it in your hand, each opponent loses X life and you gain X life, where X is the card's converted mana cost. I think this card is absurd. I think this card is really, really... Maybe Absurd is too strong, but I think this card is very good. I was surprised that it wasn't legendary, honestly. Uh, yeah, I mean... Okay, if you have Ascend, this card is Absurd. <laughs> if you don't have Ascend, it's a 4-mana <laughs> 2-4 flyer, which is pretty bad. I mean, I guess it's a vampire, so that's not the end of the world. But if you have Ascend, it's Bob, but instead of you losing life, your opponent loses life. And then you gain life. So it is absurd if you have a send going. The question is, can you get a send going? And is a 4-mana 2-4 flying good enough in the meantime? And uh, I don't know if it had lifelink or something, but I, I don't know. It's, it, it remains to be seen how easy it is to turn on Ascend in standard. I think we're going to find that turning on Ascend is easier than we think. I actually am more afraid that it's too easy than that it's too hard. Because, especially for vampires, so let's say you're playing vampires, you have this as your tribe member, you already have legions landing, which puts two permanents on the board on turn one, plus you make your land drop, so you're already at three permanents on turn one. Then you have other cards that make vampire tokens, put multiple vampires on the battlefield. So it doesn't seem like a stretch to me that by turn four slash turn five, when you play this, you're going to automatically have 
the city's blessing and automatically be ascending. Like, I don't think that's that much of a magical Christmas land scenario. If if you consider slightly building around, I don't even think you gotta warp your deck to do that and play like all raise the alarms and bad cards that put multiple permanents on the battlefield. But I think we're actually gonna find that if you're playing something that's reasonably putting creatures on the battlefield every turn, curving out, you're gonna actually hit ascend a lot more consistently than you think. And I really love that this card has the fourth toughness. Having four toughness means it dodges like lightning strike, it dodges a lot of the random removal, fatal push needs revolt. So it dodges a lot of removal, and then if it just sits out for a couple of turns it seems like it just wins you the game on its own yeah you make good points but i still don't agree <laughs> on how easy it is uh, i mean it is theoretically easy so if you want to do this on turn four you need uh six other permanents this counts as one so you need five other permanents if you have five permanents on the battlefield are you really playing a six to get blown out by any wrath effect that that is the real question uh, so I think, you know, later in the game, turn six, turn seven, uh, you have six, seven lands on the battlefield, then it's not too hard to get ascend. But on turn four, even if you could, would you be dumping 10 permanents on the battlefield, uh, for fear of a wrath? Uh, so, uh, I, I don't know. It's like so all in and you, you put it down and you don't even get anything if the opponent wraths. If it had an enter the battle, uh, field trigger ascend, it might be more useful. Uh, EDH, I think this will be really strong. Uh, you have mana rocks, you have other permanents, uh, plus your lands to get you into the city's blessing. Uh, so I, I think it'll be very strong in EDH decks. But standard, it's it's so all in. I don't know if you wanna you wanna do that. Let's say it was just Bob, right? If you had nine permanents on the battlefield, would you play a Bob on turn four? <laughs> that is the question, right? And most likely you'll be like, uh, no. Uh, but where this is strong is you somehow get Ascend, and later in the game you top deck this, you play this, you have City's Blessing, you have uh, the special ability, and you're just drawing cards for free. It's absurd. It'll be interesting to see if racing to Ascend is a, a thing that people are trying to do. Like, if Ascend and the payoffs are strong enough that you're actually going to focus on trying to hit Ascend as fast as possible, and then trusting that even if things go wrong, your Ascend cards are going to be so good that it doesn't matter. Because like yeah. you said, yeah, your board gets rashed, sure, you draw this off the top, and it's still going to win you the game if it sits on the battlefield. And even, like, Vana's Hunger is not great, but it's a pretty good removal spell for three mana if you have Cities Blessing. So there's pieces there that do kind of incentivize you to get to Ascend as quickly as possible. Whether or not that's a legit strategy, we'll have to see, but I think it's it's worth trying at least this seems like because of twilight profit and some of the other payoffs it might be worth trying to just get to ascend as quickly as possible and trusting that the power of the payoffs will be enough all right i'm calling it right now seth i'm gonna make you make an ascend deck okay we'll call it ascension and it's gonna be mono black so we'll call it dark ascension <laughs> all right all right we'll do all right that. here we go we, we, we put, put the copyright on this deck name okay here you go all right uh next card uh it's been a while we haven't had our token phoenix <laughs> card so here we go two red red rekindling phoenix four three flying when it dies create a zero one red elemental creature token with at the beginning of your upkeep, sacrifice this creature and return target creature or return target card named Rekindling Phoenix from the graveyard to the battlefield. It gains haste until end of turn. I think this is better than most Phoenixes we've seen, but I still, I'm not sure that I think it's good. I agree. 
I, I think people see that it is essentially immortal with no cost. Usually the phoenix, the phoenixes we see have some kind of cost to bring back. Uh, either mana cost or damage triggers or something like that or, or casting a spell. This one is basically free. The biggest downside I see is when you initially cast it, it has no haste. Uh, the, the subsequent uh, revivals have haste, but basically you play it, you pass, uh, your opponent gets a turn, you go back to your turn, you attack, your opponent removes it, it's your opponent's turn again, and then on your third turn you get to attack with the hasty one. So your opponent can delay for quite a while uh, with, a, with a timely removal spell, so I don't, I don't particularly like it as a kind of red finisher, but in a red mid-range deck, uh, it's just hard to deal with. And imagine a deck with Hazarets and Rekindling Phoenixes, like you can't kill anything, you're eventually going to die, <laughs> right? So uh, in a mid-rangey deck, I think I like it, but uh, not for aggressive decks. It's not aggressive enough, I don't think. And I think the other problem is Red's got Hazaret at 4. It's got Chandra Torture Defiance at 4. It has some really, really, really strong Red 4 drops, and even if this Phoenix is good, I can't imagine it's Hazaret good or Chandra Torture Defiance good, so I think that's going to be the problem with Standard, is even if it's better than we think it is, it's probably not better than those two cards, which means it probably won't show up in decks. Yep. Uh, the old Hazaret problem. Is anything better than Hazaret? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Uh, Alright, next card, it's a green mythic, Polyraptor, 6 green green, 5-5, five, five. creature dinosaur, whenever Polyraptor is dealt damage, create a token that's a copy of Polyraptor. So, I think this card is really unplayable, but it's also a really sweet against the odds card. People have been talking about ever since it was spoiled, some combos if you use the red dinosaur forerunner card that pings everything when a dinosaur enters the battlefield. You play this, you basically just make a million polyraptors. If you have Regisaur Alpha, they have haste. So there's some really fun things you can do for like an against the odds style deck, but at 8 mana for only getting a 5-5... Five, five, Ugh, I can't imagine that anyone, even if you're ramping into dinosaurs, I don't think that this can really be a choice for standard. Obviously, there's not that many dinosaurs, so in Commander, sure, throw it in your deck because you just want every dinosaur possible, but I don't know. I, I think outside of Against the Odds, this card is just pretty much unplayable. Yeah, okay, standard unplayable, but who cares about standard? This <laughs> card is absurd in Commander. Remember, so when you when you deal it damage, you get... Uh, an extra polyraptor and then if you can deal damage again each of those polyraptors uh clones itself so it's exponential so i i think i saw a post on reddit of how to get to like five million polyraptors or whatever it's not that hard can you imagine like a pestilence effect uh what's the red pestilence called there's one in red pyrohemia pyrohemia uh Blade of Cells, just to kickstart this thing, right? If you attack and you Blade of Cells, <laughs> and then you Pyrohemia, right? You get an absurd amount of Polyraptors, and we're not even talking about doubling season, right? So uh, I'm, I, I'm just excited to make a billion Raptors, and of course they're dinosaurs, of course it's green, so you can probably find some way to abuse this by... You know, having them fight when they enter the battlefield, sacrificing them to draw cards, uh, giving them haste, whatever, right? You can do anything with these 5-5 five, five hasty uh, dinosaurs. So I, I think 
some some Timmy or Johnny out there is gonna go nuts with Polyraptor, and I'm really excited about it uh, for Commander. I guess it does seem pretty fun for Commander. There are some ways to really abuse it. Unfortunately, bad news is Moto token limit 200. So even if you can make a billion <laughs> Raptors, you're only gonna make 200 Poly Raptors. But 200 is still pretty sweet. Mark my words, we're hitting the token limit in Commander <laughs> Clash sometime soon. <laughs> All right, we have a, a flip card. Uh, it's a mythic artifact, Azor's Gateway, legendary artifact. One tap, draw a card, then exile a card from your hand. If cards with five or more different converted mana costs are exiled with Azor's Gateway, you gain five life, untap it, and transform it. The flip side is a legendary land, Sanctum of the Sun. Tap, add X mana of any one color to your mana pool where X is your life total. I love this card as a mythic rare. This is the card most from the whole set that when I saw it, my gut reaction was just, oh my god, this card is insane in Commander. And then, unfortunately, the more I thought about it and like talked to Tomer about it, I kind of have realized that maybe it's not as insane as my initial reaction. But I love that that's, that's what mythics should do. Mythics, when you see them, they should make you go, oh my god, wow, that can do some crazy things. So I think the problem I found with the card is that it basically is going to put a huge target on your head. I think, like, the card is good. Looting is fine. You can flip it for a few turns. Like, I think the card is good. But your opponents are going to see, like, oh, they got two cards of different converted mana cost exile. Now it's three. Now it's four. And when that clock gets close to flipping, they're just going to kill you. Because if you get a land that just taps for 20 mana or 40 mana or 45 mana, you probably just win the game. Tomer said it's like having an omniscience, essentially. If you flip this, you basically just can play everything in your hand with this one land. So I think that... I think that's the problem. I think it puts a big target on your head. So unless you're doing shenanigans where you're tapping and untapping it and flipping it in the same turn, I expect that you're going to get close to flipping it. And then the whole table is going to be like, oh, OK, we got to kill Seth now because he's going to win next turn if we don't. Yeah, I agree. It's also really slow. right? It takes you five turns of exiling to get your land. And there are other ways to construct infinite mana in Commander, uh, which is better then I guess 40 mana here or 80 mana if you can untap this land. Uh, but it is really slow. So it is a very exciting card. Uh, you have to actually have a curve in your deck so you can actually uh, use this. Uh, but it's slow and there's many ways to stop it. So I think it's fair. Uh, I wonder if there's some way to like cheat the flipping. There is. It's really janky. You have to. <laughs> what, what you have this? to use. Uh, so you have to use something that turns Azur's Gateway into a creature. So like March in the Machine, which makes artifact creatures. Then you need a card that turns the creature Azur's Gateway into a werewolf. So you need like adaptive. Uh, uh, whatever the card was, the blue enchantment or conspiracy, then. <laughs> and then you get to Moon Mist and flip it around. So. <laughs> That that sounds like your kind of deck, Seth. <laughs> yeah, Commander Clash. Next time I'm filling in, that's what we're doing. <laughs> oh, yes. All right. Next, we have uh, Azor the Lawbringer. Two white, white, red, red, mythic, legendary creatures. Sphinx, 6-6, six, six, flying. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, each opponent can't cast uh, instant or sorcery spells during that player's next turn. Uh, when Azor attacks, you may pay... Uh, X, white, blue, blue. If you do, gain X life and draw X cards. Sphinx's Revelation. 
Actually, next time I fill in on Commander Clash, <laughs> this is what I'm doing. This is my favorite Commander card from the set. I don't even think it's that good, but it just does everything I love. It gives you this big, dirtily flyer. It gives you repeated card draw to find your janky combos. It gives you life gain so you're not in danger of dying. So I don't think this card is actually insane, but it's the card I'm most excited to build a commander deck around from the entire set. Yeah, it's it's so slow and dirtily set. <laughs> you could just actually play Sphinx's Revelation. Uh, I'm actually very excited about this for standard. Uh, its protection ability is kind of so-so. Like, your opponent has to kill it with an instant speed spell uh, during uh, the turn you cast it. If they don't, then you get one free turn of a Sphinx's Revelation. Uh, I'm just excited for Sphinx's Revelation in standard. Uh, it's probably hard as a control finisher. Uh, it's probably a bit slow, but God Pharaoh's Gift, cheating this into play, <laughs> gives you uh, free Sphinx's Revelations. So I, I really like it there. Uh, so I, I think we'll see this somewhere in Standard, either top-end control slash mid-rangey decks or just being cheated into play. God of Pharaoh's Gift's a great point, because then you have all your mana untapped. So you get this in your graveyard, get it back for free, you negate the downside of it dying to stuff, dying to instants, and just immediately slam in with it. And if it dies, you didn't spend any mana on it. So what do you care? You just do it again and mill another one. So I really like that idea. I hadn't really thought about that. Yeah, and there are a lot of kind of diehard control players waiting for the return of Sphinx's <laughs> Revelation or Nefalia Drown Yard. And we're not getting those, but we have this, so they're going to try to force this into every deck they can. <laughs> so, uh, over and under Ashoda playing this the next time we see him. <laughs> I think... So, did you happen to see any of the SCG event this weekend? Uh, I did not. Okay, so, uh, Patrick, uh, Sullivan was casting, and he went on a huge rant about the Chupacabra, the Necrotal creature, and the big point of it was how it punished cards like this and made it so you basically have to play Torrential Gear Hulk instead of this, was one of his big points from it, because uh, it just, it doesn't do anything right away, and when you have a Torrential Gear Hulk option that does do something right away, it's really hard for a control player to play Azur over Torrential Gear Hulk, so I think that that might be a concern. His rant made a lot of sense about how it's going to be very difficult to really make this card work in a fair deck. That's a very good point, and it doesn't agree with what I picture to be fun times and standards, so I'm going to ignore that. <laughs> and I'm going to force Azra the Lawbringer. <laughs> oh, but I never thought about that, because the Necrotal creature is a creature. It's not instant or sorcery, so you can actually kill it. Same with uh, Cast Out. Ooh, that's right? true. That's an enchantment. It's not instant or sorcery, so this protection is kind of flaky. Not as yeah. good as it looks at first glance. Yeah, it's yeah. not. It's not etherling. It's not like nigh invincible. It, it the, the Sphinx didn't see this far into the future. It, it still has something to work on. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, next, I think my favorite card of the set: Zakama Primal Calamity, six red, green, white, nine nine legendary creature, elder dinosaur, mythic, vigilance, reach, trample. When it enters the battlefield, if you cast it, untap all lands you control. Two in a red, Zakama deals three damage to target creature. Two in a green, destroy target artifact or enchantment. Two in a white, you gain three life. Meh, doesn't draw cards. Give me, give me Azur. Give me Azur. <laughs> you can play Zakama. <laughs> uh, this could have been leaked, quote unquote, leaked from Commander 2019, and I would have totally bought it up. This looks like the face card of a Commander product. The art is insane it's big and splashy and does outlandish things and i don't care if it sucks (laughs) 
Uh, it's nine mana, which is a lot, but you get all your mana back, right? So if you can actually cast it nine mana, uh, nine mana and deals three damage to three target creatures when it enters the battlefield, right? Nine mana, three, you know, kill three artifacts or enchantments. That's actually pretty decent. So I really like it. I think it's actually good. I, I I think it's really good. It's a really flashy, cool commander. I think it's pretty powerful for being nine mana. It's just, it's not my style so much. I'd rather be playing pirates, drawing cards with Azur. It's not, it's just not really what I want to be doing specifically in commander, but I do think it is a really good commander for a dinosaur commander deck. It has three heads, Seth. Yeah, one one for each ability. One gives you life, heads. one kills creatures. If only Chaz was here, we'd be all over it. It's the Underworld Cerberus trade. Anything with three heads has to be good. Buy, buy them all. Buy them all. <laughs> oh, but oh I, I, oh, I really like this card for Commander. Even though I don't know what to do with it, uh, the odds of you casting it more than once are pretty slim. Uh but I'm, I'm sure people will ramp it up. And even if you somehow just cheat it into play, it's pretty good. You don't get the untapped triggers, but just being able to lightning bolt things with three mana is a pretty good deal. So I'm, I'm liking our Elder Dinosaur. I wish it had haste just to give it one more punch, you know, make it a little more overpowered. It definitely gets the creature that you'll likely attack into with your flyer because you don't realize <laughs> it has reach award from rivals of Ixalan. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. The, the good old vigilance reach that no one ever expects. <laughs> All right. Uh, those are most of the mythics. We talked about the other mythics last week. So let's move on to some rares. One card people are excited about. Slaughter the Strong. One white white sorcery. Each player chooses any number of creatures he or she controls with total power four or less, then sacrifices all other creatures he or she controls. Man, I'm I'm coming around on this one a little bit. What do you think about this one, Richard? Okay, so so you get to keep any number of creatures whose power when you add up is four or less. Everything else sacrifices. I think I don't know. I, I think it's a pretty interesting three mana wrath. I think it has modern playability. I don't know what to do about standard. Basically, it's almost like those wraths where your opponent gets to keep your best creatures. Uh, but if they play creatures too big, like a 5-5, five five, let's say uh, Trap Jaw Tyrant, then they can't do anything. But if you have two weenie creatures, two two ones, you get to keep them. So there are ways to build your deck to kind of break the symmetry here. So I... I think it's decent, and even if you're a control deck, maybe this is good enough. Just thinning out your opponent's board, even if they have four power remaining, maybe good enough as a three mana spell. So, so I yeah, I think we'll see this somewhere. I, I think we'll see it in standard. I don't know if it's going to be overpowered or anything, but I think it'll have its uses. In standard, I think it's a really good safety valve just for dinosaurs getting too out of control. If, like, Carnage Tyrant and big dinosaurs become dominant, this is a really good either main deck or sideboard option. I think there's some weird, sneaky modern potential. For one thing, it basically just destroys everything from Death Shadow, which is really good. Uh, Assuming your opponent's Death Shadows are 4-4s, which they often are. So that's relevant. The other thing I really like about it is it might be a sideboard option for random green-white like company creature decks. Your Birds of Paradise, your Noble Hierarchs count 
for free, basically, since they don't have power. It comes in under Gaddic Teague if you're trying to hate bear your opponent. So in theory, you can keep like two Noble Hierarchs, a Gaddic Teague, and a Leonin Arbiter or something, and Wrath away basically all your opponent's Tarmogoyfs and Death Shadows and Gurmag Anglers and big things. So I think there might be more modern potential if you really look at how it works than, uh, than you might think at first glance. Yeah, I really like the idea of playing arbitrary tribal spells or artifacts or enchantments to grow your opponent's Tarmogoyfs to five power just to <laughs> slaughter them. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Eldrazi kind of reality smashers, things like that, Death Shadows. Uh, a lot of things kind of just get wrecked <laughs> by Slaughter the Strong in Modern. So yeah, I do think it has potential there. And it's one of the more interesting three mana rats we've seen i think i agree with that all right uh next card the card that everyone believes in <laughs> blood sun i i had a i almost had a heart attack when i saw this because i thought it was blood moon and standard i was like <laughs> what but it is the blood sun tune a red enchantment when blood sun enters the battlefield draw a card all lands lose all abilities except mana abilities i feel so bad about this card i feel like I'm expected to love this card because I love Blood Moon, but I don't love it as much as I should, so I feel a little guilty about that. I think I think this card is okay, and it has some uses, but I, I don't really see it as a Blood Moon effect. It's not a jank your opponent out of the game by casting it on turn two type card in most matchups. It's more answering specific problems, I think, than Blood Moon is just like, eh, hey, I'm just not going to let you play Magic today. I disagree. I think it is Blood Moon, the second coming of Blood Moon, and I think it's going to wreck modern. Uh, here here are some key differences. It cycles. If it's a bad card, you just draw a card. doesn't even matter. Uh, it turns off fetch lands. So under Blood Moon, your fetch lands generate colorless mana. Or I guess red mana, but if you're not playing red, it's, it's essentially colorless to you. With Blood Sun, your fetch lands generate nothing. So once this comes down, if you're a fetch land-based deck, if this comes down on turn three, you're stuck at either two mana or three mana, depending on if you went on you know, the play or the draw, and there's no way around it, right? With Blood Moon, you can fetch basics to kind of get out from under this uh, effect, but with Blood Sun, you got nothing. You, you're, you, you just have to not play fetch lands, and good luck with that, right? So I think it's pretty punishing in modern uh, for certain decks, and... The good news is if it's a bad card, you draw it late, your opponent has six lands or whatever, they're not affected by this, it just cycles. Whereas Blood Moon would be a dead card in the dead matches that you have to side out. So I really like this. And uh, people have pointed out a couple things. So like bounce lands lose their bouncing ability. So you just get free two, ma two mana lands under Blood Sun. And two, Tron is not affected by this at all. So, you know, red variants of Tron can just play this. It shuts off Ghost Quarters, Tech Edges, Fetch Lands. Uh, while Tron doesn't actually care, the only thing is maybe Sanctum of Ugin. And uh, that's it. And it kind of just cycles for fun. So they're free to assemble Tron and abuse their lands. Uh, while a lot of decks who rely on Tech Edges and Ghost Quarters and stuff kind of just get locked out. So Tron is looking a little scary with this Blood Sun card. So I, I think this will have a pretty big impact on Modern. 
I really wish that it punished lands that tap for multiple mana, too. Like, you don't gotta make them tap for zero, but maybe, like, lands that tap for two or more mana tap for one colorless mana instead or something like that. I think, because the Tron thing is pretty scary, uh, and this doesn't really do anything to help in that matchup, which is one of the matchups that you want Blood Moon for. As far as standard, I think this is pretty much a safety valve card to make sure, like, Search for Kanta and all the other crazy flip lands we got don't get too far out of control. I don't think... We don't know what the standard format will look like. In our past standard format, I don't think you'd even want this in your sideboard. I think you can just Field of Ruin to deal with stuff. But it's nice to have this around to make sure that there's not a deck that's just absolutely dominating thanks to the legendary flip enchantment lands. Uh, next card, we have Dire Fleet Daredevil. One in a red, 2-1, creature, human, pirate, first strike. When it enters the battlefield, exile target instantly or sorcery from an opponent's graveyard. You may cast that card this turn, and you may spend mana as though it were mana of any type to cast that spell. If that card would be put into a graveyard this turn, exile it. I think this card is really strong. To me, this is the second coming of Abbot of Carol Keep, is what it reminds me of mostly. It's a two-drop that's fine if you just run it out on turn two, and then if you draw in the late game, the problem with a lot of two-drops is you're drawing a crappy two-drop on turn six, and your opponent's drawing big things, but in the late game, then you're casting this, and you're getting a free Fatal Push, or you're getting a free Glimmer of Genius as a bonus for casting this. Also in Modern, so many decks play cheap spells and try to get things in the graveyard, so even Playing this on turn three and just thought seizing your opponent back with their own thought seize, that's a pretty big deal. So I don't know exactly where it fits in modern, but I really like it in standard as a two drop that has good utility on turn two and in the late game. Yeah, it's basically Snapcaster for your opponent's spells, but instead of flash, you get first strike. And it's red instead of blue. Uh, I like it because it's a pirate. I think a 2 1 red first strike pirate has potential to do something. Uh, its ability is good, but uh, I don't know about casting spells in your opponent's graveyard. It's not as good as casting spells in your graveyard, uh, basically because your opponent has their own game plan and you may not want their spells. So sometimes it will just miss and do nothing and really just be a 2-1 first striker. So if you can get a pirate deck together, being a 2-1 first strike pirate isn't the end of the world. So I, I think it will fit in certain decks that can actually use its actual pirate type. But in terms of casting spells, eh, I think it's okay. Uh, in modern, the same problem. You know, you don't really want your opponent's spells most of the time. You kind of want your own spells. Like, you kind of want to hit your own lightning bolt or whatever. So if you're playing against the right deck, uh, you can take the good spells. But if you're playing against a deck that's doing something totally weird... Uh, you don't want the spells. If you're playing against Infect or something, I don't know if you actually want their spells. So it's a toss-up there, but I think it's a pretty strong card, and I think uh, it's pretty exciting. Maybe this is the fixed Snapcaster Mage. It just happens to be red instead of blue. Uh, next card, we have Mastermind's Inquisition. Two black-black sorcery, choose one. Search your library for a card, put it into your hand, then shuffle your library... Or choose a card you own from outside the game and put it into your hand. It's a wish. I can't believe they printed this card, first off. Like, I did not think Wizards had any interest in printing more wishes, so I'm mostly just surprised. But this card seems really good to me in the sense that 
when you look at the tutors we get these days, uh, kind of the baseline is four mana anyway, so it's kind of just a diabolic tutor, which is about as good as our tutors get, and then it has the upside of randomly just getting a sideboard card, which is a really real upside, especially in, I mean, I guess in any format, but the ability to play this and get a card that you can't really main deck, like Authority of the Console against Ramanon Bread in Standard, or a Stony Silence against Affinity in Modern, or a Rest in Peace against Dredge. It's a little slow, especially for Modern, but I think there's a lot of potential here to get your sideboard silver bullets in Game 1, especially if you're in a combo deck that wants a tutor anyway. Yeah, I was like you. When I read this, I was like, what? Did they just really (laughs) reprint this? And it's not even that bad. It's one mana more than, you know, your typical wish. But then it's also Diabolic Tutor, which is a perfectly reasonable card. So I'm actually very surprised at this card. I think it's really strong. We haven't seen this effect before. I'm excited to see what it does in Standard. Like, what does it mean for Standard when you can just grab stuff from your sideboard in game one? We haven't seen this in quite a while. So I'm very excited there. And in Modern, I think having one more mana on Burning Wish is good enough. If you're a Storm deck, you can now kind of put your finishers outside of your deck if you want. Uh, you can obviously generate enough mana to do this. Uh, you can bring in your your kind of cards you need to get rid of the sideboard cards against you, right? You can you can wish in kind of like a, a bounce spell to get rid of the Ley Line or something if your opponent happens to be playing the Ley Line deck in game one, right? Kind of the, those gotcha cards against your deck. You can now get them. So I'm very excited for this card. I think we'll see it somewhere. And I'm really excited to see what it does for Standard, uh, what we do for our sideboards in Standard with this new card. I think the other underrated aspect of this card for Modern is it's a way you can protect a combo piece from something like Surgical Extraction. So I know I've definitely played decks before if you're really reliant on one specific piece to win the game, and then your opponent manages to, like, Thought Seize you, and then they Surgically Extract that combo piece, you're just kind of, like, out of luck, and you're like, oh, I can't win now. But if you can leave one of your combo pieces in the sideboard, you're not really able to get got that manner, especially in games 2 and 3. So I think there's some cool upside there as too. My only real big concern about modern is black is a weird color for storm deck so i don't know if storm in specific would want to cast a double black spell like if that would be too painful on their mana base but i think the potential is definitely there this card is cheaper than i imagined it would be and i didn't even imagine they'd print a wish period but i expect i would have expected this card to be at least five mana if i knew wizards was going to print this text on a card yeah i agree with you i i'm surprised that it's just literally straight up better than diabolic tutor It's just weird. (laughs) I I think four mana for just the wishing ability is fine, but when you combine it with the fact that it can just tutor, uh, it makes it pretty strong. Uh, So Seth, those are all the cards we want to talk about. We've seen a ton of good cards, but we haven't seen the energy killer. What does this mean for standard? Oh, man. Well, I guess this kind of transitions us towards our next topic, (laughs) which is uh, the impending ban and restricted announcement. But to focus on Rivals of Ixalan for another minute... I feel like Wizards did a really good job printing safety valve answers to a lot of things. We got more graveyard hate cards. We got stuff to deal with the flip lands in Blood Sun. Uh, so I feel like Wizards did a good job of answering 
things from Ixalan block and from Amoncat block, but we did not get a single card that really does anything directly to energy and even indirectly. It doesn't like pick up on much of the fringe hate that showed up. So my feeling is combining the fact that Rivals of Ixalan didn't really have much to deal with energy at all or anything at all with a couple of other just like hints and things that have happened in recent weeks, I'm now fully convinced that we're getting energy banning next week. I'm I'm 99% sure that that's what's happening. So I don't know what you're feeling, Richard. Is is there any chance that we don't need a banning and that Rivals of Ixalan is going to shake things up? Or where are you on the odds of a banning happening? I think I agree with you. I, I don't think Wizards will take the conservative approach of do nothing and hope it fixes itself. I think they've tried that for a while. I don't see any hate really for energy uh we see two drops that are strictly worse than long tusk come and things that just can't compete which leads me to believe they are gonna ban energy as well uh just so that the set has a chance to shine there there's something you know to get hype about because at the end of the day you have all these new cards but if you play them and get steamrolled by energy you're not gonna be very happy and you're just gonna move on so i i think they're gonna do it i in the past where i think it was even more fringe that they banned something. They went ahead and did it anyway. So I, I think uh, the argument for energy banning this time around is much stronger than some of the, the previous bannings. So I think they'll definitely do it, uh, especially since we don't see uh, any hate cards or anything to you know look at clearly and say, hey, this will compete with energy. Everything so far has been uh, energy seems better. I don't see how this interacts. Why would I play this? Uh, which leads me to believe they'll just ban energy outright with this upcoming announcement. For me, the thing that really put me over the edge was Wizards put out, uh, I think it was Melissa DeTora that wrote the article, but put out an article on Friday that basically uh, talked about block monsters, I think the the name of the article was, but it talked about parasitic mechanics and how it makes decks too good and basically compared energy, our current energy deck, to Affinity, which is basically notorious as being one of the most broken, overpowered mistakes ever put into standard in the history of Magic, and how those decks ruin the metagame and crush diversity and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I just can't imagine that Wizards would publish that article and then not do something, because if they don't, that article is just such an easy thing to point to and be like, hey, well, like, you just said this was affinity. You said energy is literally affinity and that you pushed it too hard and it's ruining standard. How could you not take action at that point? So I feel like, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I feel like articles like that, if you watch the GP coverage over the weekend, there was a lot of kind of snarky comments about standard and like, oh yeah, everyone loves this format and stuff. So I don't know. I might be reading too much into it, but it almost feels to me like Wizards is setting the stage for an energy banning next week. And if they were to ban energy, what goes? Do you think they'll take the attune with ether route or everything route <laughs> like long dust cup a whirler virtuoso rogue refiner just everything that i'm still a little torn on i think i'm hoping and this is probably selfish just because i'm sick of energy and done with it i'm hoping they just go affinity just ban like a tune ether hub and i don't know cub and rogue refiner or something just ban like three or four cards so energy is just no longer a thing i think the worst outcome of this whole thing would be that Wizards, let's say, just banned a tune with Ether, and we find out that 
energy is still keeping all the tribes from seeing play, even without a tune from Ether, because the rest of the pieces are so good. And then Wizards went through all the heartache and pain of banning something, but didn't actually fix the problem. So with them comparing it to Affinity, I'm thinking it's going to at least be multiple cards. I think the minimum is something like a tune plus something, whether that be Ether Hub or uh, Ether Hub or Long Tusk Hub or Rogue Refiner, and I could definitely see like a three or four energy card ban announcement. But what do you think, Richard? I think one card. I, I think Wizards is gonna play ironically the same energy hand they played last time, where they banned Marvel and they said, "Hey, you can still take all of these cards and build this other deck, and here's a deck list we made for you." <laughs> Right, So I think they'll just ban a single card so that you still have a semblance of a deck if you spent, you know, three, four hundred dollars building Teamer Energy. I don't think they're going to mass ban and have every single player uh, who plays Standard, you know, who's playing Energy get mad because they don't have a deck tomorrow. So I think they'll do the light-handed approach and maybe it'll backfire. Maybe they just do Ether Hub or Tune or, you know, Long Tusk Cover or something. They just do one and the deck is still good enough and it dominates standard. Uh, but I think they'll try to preserve everyone's deck for PR purposes. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess that that is a pretty good argument for taking a light touch. But I feel like if they ban one card, I think the there's pretty much a consensus that the first card to go if they're only banning one it has to be a tune with ether i think pretty much the entire community i think is in agreement on that so what if they do stoneforge mystic they <laughs> produce a deck list and say you can only play energy if you play this exact deck list but if you're not playing this deck list all these cards are banned <laughs> I guess it would depend on the deck list. If they just copy, like, the most recent winning list off of Goldfish, then that probably would not be good. <laughs> I still can't believe they did that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was ridiculous. So, moving from standard and briefly into modern before we get to we got a ton of fish mail, so we got to keep this short. But we have a modern pro tour coming up three weeks and we just had some modern events, SCG events, team events at the GP level this weekend. And some of the pros are kind of rallying against modern as a pro tour format because they feel like essentially in their own words that there's too many decks basically they can't break the format or play the best deck and the fact that there's so many decks kind of minimizes the skill level to some extent where you can run into matchups even if your deck is good and you're a good player that your deck just can't beat because there's so many decks in the format so i uh, hopefully i like modern i'm hoping that this doesn't gain traction and actually lead to last minute changes by wizards especially since they've already said a bunch of times they're not changing modern before the Pro Tour. I feel like if they make some hurried last-minute change before next week's announcement, that would be a disaster. Uh, but what do you think about all this, Richard? What's your feelings on Modern and Modern at the Pro Tour level? Uh, so I agree with their sentiment. I, I've joked about this many times on the podcast that Modern's just too darn diverse. But I, I don't agree with changing the Pro Tour now or in the future. There should always be a high-level Modern tournament. Maybe you remove it from the Pro Tour and make it its own thing. But you should always have a tournament where you see the highest level pros playing the best decks in Modern sometime every year. Uh, as to their actual point, uh, I agree. And I, I don't know if it's just because I play fair decks. It's quite annoying as a Jun player to have to meta game against 20 decks. Right? It's just not possible. And there will be games where you sit down and you just cannot win. And you must scoop and move on. And those feel bad. Now, 
at the same time, it's also bad sitting down and playing Teamer Energy 20 rounds in a row. So there's a spectrum here where if it's too diverse, it just feels like literally a coin flip and you can't do anything about it. But if it's not diverse enough, everyone complains because everything is boring. So I can see their point of view. I don't know if it's actually a problem, but I can see how they would get upset at something like that. But I don't agree with the fact that we should remove modern from high level play, right? High, it's everyone, like a lot of people like modern and we want to see our favorite pro players play it. So we should have a time uh, every year, multiple times a year to see this high level play. And I think the other thing that gets missed in this is modern, I think, is the most popular spectator format. So I think... I think there's a trade-off here. I definitely see what the pros are saying, or some of the pros are saying, and I think I even agree with them from their perspective. If you're, like, trying to make money by winning Magic tournaments, Modern would be a really frustrating uh, format to play because of the variance that's inherent of having so many decks. But the trade-off for that is I fully expect this to be the most popular pro tour we've had in a long time. I've seen polls on Twitter. Card Kingdom did one recently where they asked most... uh, favorite format for as far as tournaments were concerned in 70% roughly 70% of people said modern and the rest split between standard and legacy and legacy was roughly the same as standard so seeing a different deck every single round and seeing 30 different decks over the course of a pro tour that's exactly what the viewers want so there's a trade-off like yes I can definitely understand the frustration and it does make sense from the pro perspective but the trade-off of that is you're getting a lot of people watching this event and in the long run if the goal is to make magic and esport, eyeballs on Twitch is a pretty important part of that. So hopefully for one pro tour year, the the trade-off, even from the pro's perspective, will end up being worth it. Maybe your odds of winning the modern pro tour are lower than a standard pro tour when you only get a metagame against three decks. But hopefully you get some fringe benefits over the long haul as far as like sponsorships and stuff like that from having modern be more of a spectator esport than it is uh, right now. Yeah, and remember that the same complaint was levied at the last Modern Pro Tour, and then Eldrazi broke out, (laughs) and the pros had a field day with that one because they found the decks and they crushed, you know, all the other decks. So this this isn't a new argument. People have complained about Modern for a long time. Uh, Too many decks, sideboards are too strong, yada, yada, yada. This has been around for a while, and that didn't stop the last Pro Tour from being epic, so... Uh, I'm hoping it's not the Blood Sun Tron breakout this time around, but I wouldn't be surprised if some random card in Ixalan, uh, Rivals of Ixalan, somehow broke Modern and the pros find it. Because every time you have this many pros looking at Modern, something's bound to change. Yeah, well, I'm excited for it. I'm looking forward to the Modern Pro Tour, and hopefully, I don't think Wizards will change anything just because it's such late notice. Maybe we'll see if this has a long-term impact of Wizards not putting Modern Pro Tour on the schedule for next year if the pros are heavily against it or if there'll be bannings post-Pro Tour. But I think that for now, with the Pro Tour only being three weeks away and the BNR next week, I can't imagine they can really change anything at this late of a date. And I expect it to be a really good great event to watch. I'm super excited for it. More excited for the last three or four standard pro tours where we kind of knew going into it what the format would look like. We don't we don't know what modern pro tour is going to look like. So I think that's really exciting for everyone that's watching from home. Uh, breaking news, modern pro tour canceled. Next pro tour is actually Commander, the most popular magic <laughs> format. <laughs> watch LSV uh, take everyone on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wish they actually did that, but... Uh... 
Wizards marketing at Worlds, they should have played Commander <laughs> as like a side event or like a kind of pre-Worlds thing, kind of like All Star Games where they have your favorite pro athletes doing dumb challenges and non-serious things to kind of liven things up. That would be interesting. I would pay money. I would actually pay money to watch <laughs> <laughs> like Peach Garden Oath play Commander. <laughs> Uh, Alright, let's move on to Fishmail. If you have questions, send them to the hashtag MTGFishmail uh, at MTGGoldfish on Twitter, and we'll get to your questions on air. Uh, first question, Kylan and a bunch of numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Could you tell me why you think Counters Coco is awesome and Storm is awful when they basically do the same? Uh, so I think the problem that I have, or the reason I feel differently about the decks is that it's harder to interact with Storm. Uh, Counter is company, while the clock is similar and they can just win on turn three if they have Devoted Druid into uh, Vizier and a payoff, all that stuff dies to Path, it dies to Fatal Push. So the stuff that you're running in your deck anyway interacts with it. When with Storm, Unless you're playing a counterspell deck, you usually don't have main deck ways to interact with Gifts Ungiven for Passing Flames, a bunch of rituals win the game. So I think that's the difference. Most decks can interact with Counters Company, and only a few decks, blue decks specifically, control decks, can interact with Storm Game 1. Alright, next question. Kanawa Taki, how do you envision standard after Rivals, post-rotation? Uh, blue-white flash returning, Grixis control being good again? I think it's 100% wait and see what the ban list says. I think right now my feeling is the format looks basically exactly the same as it has been with Ramanamp Red and Energy as the two best decks and everything else kind of fighting in the second tier. Uh, but if there's a banning, all bets are off, and I expect the tribes to really to really make an impact if there's a energy banning. Yeah, I, I agree. We, we can't really say anything until we know what's happening with energy. Uh, next question, Z Shepherds. They need to keep reprinting modern staples to get prices down, but the master set model is not great. Maybe instead they should build tier 1 to 1.5 event decks and sell them. MSRP 100, or just print modern cards in standard sets bit by bit? Uh, I think those are interesting ideas. I think modern cards that don't destroy standard, we had some problems with like Thoughtseize and Mutavault in the past, I think should definitely show up more often in standard sets. Hopefully they will with the corset returning, that's a good reprinting spot. I think that the MSRP would be higher. I don't think Wizards would... I think Wizards gives up too much money of selling master sets if they sell a $800 deck for $100 MSRP. Uh, all right, next question. Maxi Wawa, is Chaz listening? If so, enjoy time off. Hope you come back soon. I hope Chaz is listening. I'm sure he's listening. He's got <laughs> to fill his uh, limited amount of free time some way, so why not with us? Next question. Asepic121, heads up for you in the podcast to fairly completely give up his spark during the events of Time Spiral. It's why we have him as a creature instead of a planeswalker, and his flavor text explains it too. Oh, well, I should start reading more flavor text. Oh, it sounds like he's finding his spark back this block. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost almost 100% positive he's a planeswalker again. I just cannot see him getting bullied by Jace or something as a human. Like, they, they're going to give it back to him somehow uh, if he doesn't have a spark right now. Uh, next question. Lordy... Lord TY Man 2890, the energy problem has been a topic of discussion for some time, but my question is what happens after it rotates slash is banned? Merfolk in a vacuum is a powerful deck. Does it become the deck to beat, or does Scare of God and Graveyard decks still hold the title? 
I think it'll be super interesting to see what happens. I honestly don't know. I think Ramen on Bread, if it didn't get hit by a fringe Reflector Mage-style banning, would be the default best deck if Energy was banned. But I think that you can build to beat Ramen on Bread, and then I think you have Merfolk, you have Vampires, you have Scarab God decks, but all those decks have answers. There's Graveyard Heat, there's answers to the tribes, there's removal. So I would be super excited, especially without a standard Pro Tour. I think it's, if they ban Energy, it's the Wild West for the next few months. No big tournaments, few SCG tournaments even, limited mono results, so anything goes if energy gets hit hard with a banning. I totally forgot about the preemptive bans. Do you think it will happen? Do you think their article will say, uh, after energy, we noticed Raminap Red was really strong, so we'll just preemptively ban Hazaret, or we'll preemptively ban the Scare of God. Do you think there will be collateral damage from the energy banning? I'm going to say no, but I think it is a realistic possibility. But I think odds are in favor of just energy, but I wouldn't be shocked if they threw in a Ramanamp red card or even the Scarab God as well. Yeah, I, 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 almost, I almost want to say they're going to do it, but I can't see them banning even more Chase Mythics. Scarab God and Hazret are kind of the face cards of uh, the, the last couple expansions. Uh, but they made this argument before when it didn't even seem necessary. So this time, like, how would it be if Standard just became Scarab God for the next year or two? Uh, you know, would that be any better? Do you think they'll ban it? I don't know. But it's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, next question, Tyler Williams, 8499. Is there any chance of an emergency rotation rotating out Kaladesh block? I think it's a really cool idea, and that actually crossed my mind recently, too. So we've been thinking along the same lines, but I can't see Wizards actually doing it. I think that's like banning two sets worth of cards, and if people get mad about having one card banned, I couldn't imagine the uproar if Wizards just surprise banned two whole sets. Yeah, that's a really cool idea. I can just imagine, you know, you sit down and write an article... You know, you're like halfway through, you revise it, you revise it, you're like, oh, this isn't going where you're, you just delete the whole thing. Like, that's what Watsi <laughs> will do with Kaladesh block. They're just like, we give up, <laughs> we're going to save our RD efforts on Dominaria. Sorry, guys, Kaladesh block is gone. Uh, interesting idea, interesting idea. But I, like you said, I don't think they're going to do it because there's just too many cards. People will be very, very upset that, uh, you know, their cards are no longer usable. Uh, next question. A little cheeky, magic cards in general have become significantly more creature-centric over the past few years. Is this a good thing for magic, and are you excited about the direction in which the game is headed? Man, that's that's a, that's a really tough question. I like old-school style of magic with powerful spells, but I think that heading in a more accessible for new player direction is probably a good thing overall. I think it would be very hard to get new players into Wasteland, Force of Will, U type formats at this point. Yeah, I never understood that argument because when we started playing Magic, we were new players and we dealt with all of this. Like, is it any different? I don't understand why yeah, now people creatures are, use... are considered more new user-friendly. I think... But... People play Hearthstone now, and they're used to... You're not even used to getting mana screwed in the current <laughs> digital TCGs. Like, oh, we'll just make sure you get a land drop every turn. So I think the frustration factor of some of those cards... I don't know if modern gamers can handle it. Hmm. 
Yeah, so you can tell that we're old school and we like our old spells that do broken things. <laughs> but I'm okay. I'm okay with the new green spells too. Uh, next question, Lex3001. I'm playing GP Santa Clara, but the Bills are in the playoffs Sunday morning. What to do? Oh, Seth. well, it's over, but... <laughs> You, you hopefully chose GP Clanisera, Santa Clara because that was a miserable game. I watched it. It was 10 to 3. It was ugly and not very entertaining. And yeah, so uh, Santa Clara was the right choice, I think. Uh, it's exactly what you would expect a Bills Jaguars <laughs> game to look like. Yeah, I was. Oh, yeah. It was. Brutal. Oh, what a time. I, I still can't believe. As someone who missed out on this season, I didn't have time to watch much football. Just looking at the teams in the playoffs, I thought we just went back in time or something. I'm like, what happened? <laughs> Why are all these teams here? Ah, <laughs> uh, but uh, Seth, how many more years till the Bills repeat? <laughs> uh, Make another playoffs? Uh, seven, 17, probably. I think they're 17. back at starting a new streak, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll check back. Uh, next question, Taskmaster1995. Tell Chaz we miss him. Anyway, what do you think of printing Squirrel's Nest into Standard and therefore Modern? Uh, I would have to look at the combos. I'm not. I think it, if there's anything it goes infinite with with just two cards, I'd be scared of it. Otherwise, yeah, sure. What is Squirrel's Nest? Oh, that's the one of the land that makes. Yeah, Enchant a Land. I think it's three mana Enchant a Land. Tap it to make a one-one Squirrel token. Yeah, it seems it seems far too dangerous because <laughs> it really prevents them from making untapped land stuff in the future even if it doesn't break anything today they have to be mindful for basically forever yeah uh, which is why they ban stuff like green sun zenith because they don't want to deal with that so uh next question desi nohe if blue green madness was modern legal uh with wonder circular logic quiet speculation is it viable enough to compete in today's meta is the same true with carlos ramos 2002 upheaval deck or a psychotog just too slow man i'd have to look at the list to really make a super educated guess it feels like madness could be good because a basking wallet for free is pretty good but i don't know it would be interesting maybe that's a goat magic question for the future could these decks compete with modern yeah i think i think that's actually pretty interesting some old decks made modern legal and if they can compete or not uh next question Josh Walton, last podcast he mentioned Merfolk needs a vapor snag. Is summon just not good enough for a standard? Yeah, I think on summon's fine. I put it in my Merfolk deck that I brewed over the weekend, so it's not vapor snag, but I think it I think it's good enough. Yeah, vapor snag performs one additional thing, which is very important, is it gives you reach. If your opponent stabilizes at one, uh they're dead to vapor snag. Uh so it, in addition to tempo, it gives you a little bit of burn. And it was exceptionally good when it was in standard because you could vapor snag, snapcaster vapor snag, which is actually two damage, which is like unheard of in blue, right? <laughs> <laughs> like two damage for one card in blue is ridiculous. So that that extra little bit of damage is what what gives you kind of that extra punch. We talked about this Canadian crawler. What are your thoughts on Watsi's block monsters article? And basically, they have to ban it now because they kind of put this stuff out there and they're going to look real bad <laughs> if they don't ban it afterwards. Yep. Also, Canadian Crawler, when I listen to the podcast, I love how Richard always sounds happy or is on the verge of laughing really hard. Is he always like that or just when he gets to talk about MTG? I think uh, you're, you're usually like pretty that. happy, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, even even when I'm complaining about energy and stuff, I'm still pretty pretty positive. 
Uh, next question, the Inked Knight. Would you build Death Shadow in Commander? If so, who would you put at the helm? Uh, I don't think you would, but if you wanted to, Veral is sweet. Veral's because uh, you can scavenge back your big creatures, so that's one cool direction. Also, Selenia Dark Angel, I think, is a way you can repeatedly drain your life down if you want to go that direction. So, a couple of possibilities, but there's just not enough Death Shadow-type creatures to really build a Commander deck around the theme, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, with three other players, they can just lightning bolt you like as soon as your death shadow is castable if each player lightning bolts you you're dead yeah so it's not the same as modern where you have time to kill them and just having a 13 13 vanilla creature is not even that good like if you had a say four mana eight eight or something it's like okay it's not it's not as good as it would be in 1v1 formats lord thursday how many non-snake or non-token snakes should i run in my blue green control deck to make uh, Sosuke's summon's worth it. I'm trying to run a Mystic Snake as a budget cryptic command. Ooh. Well, I mean, in theory, you could do it with any number, but obviously the more the better. I think I'd want to have more than just Mystic Snake. I think, like, uh, maybe eight minimum, and the more the better to really maximize the value. All right, next question. Mr. Ovlover, what if Watsi was using Unstable to test a new alternative to Masterpieces to reduce the cost of Standard? Will Dominaria contain an ultra-rare foil reprint snuck into the land sheet a la Steamflogger Boss? Uh... I mean, you never know. I think it's just a weird unstable thing, personally, but could be. Yeah, we should actually... This is too long for fish mail, but with all the loot crate stuff happening, uh, we should talk about this and what Wizards does with, you know, quote-unquote lottery cards and hidden treasures and masterpieces and stuff. Uh, because online games have been doing it, and there's been a lot of backlash, and regulation is changing about that, and I wonder how Watsi gets hit by this. Uh, so we should talk about that in a future podcast. But for the time being, I don't think they're going to do something like this. I think it's too too lottery-like. And I don't think they would just do it um, without a very strong reason. Uh, next question. Anthium, what do you think is most a card can cost to be playable in standard no matter the effect? For example, if a card said you win but cost 20, would people still play it? Uh... Maybe some people. I mean, Emrakul, original Emrakul, is pretty close to you win for 15, and it was played in ramp decks, so yes, it was played, but it wasn't like a standard staple. So I think that I think that that's the answer. Like, people would try to make infinite mana or maybe some crazy ramp deck to make it work, but you win that costs 20 mana wouldn't be a standard staple. I think people would play it, uh, because there's always some way to cheat it into play. Now, if there was a card that you just could not cheat in any way possible, I think your upper limit's probably around 10 to 12 mana. Like, kind of Ugin level, uh, or Ulamog level, I mean. That sounds about right. So people got to, like, 10. So maybe 11, 12 for just straight up win the game. Uh, But there's always ways to cheat stuff in the play, which will make these cards playable somehow. So people will always play them if it was just you win the game. Next question, Dodzer, I picked up Humans for Modern, has been on a tear winning streak or winning 75% of my league matches. My constructed rated is 1831. As a casual player, is this considered good? And how is this formulated? Oh man, so ELO ratings, basically 
whenever you play a match, uh, it depends on your opponent's rating. So if you beat someone who has a higher rating than you, you gain more points. If you beat someone with a really low rating, like if you beat someone that was a 1600, you wouldn't gain many points. So that's basically how it's formulated. 1800s is definitely very solid. I know 1900 is like the about the peak, just slightly over 1900 is about as good as it gets on Magic Online, and you're considered very, very good if you're in that range. Uh, and I believe it's, I believe 1600 is the starting point. So you start at 1600. If you lose, you can be 1500, 1400. If you win a lot, you go up with a little over 1900 being about the maximum. Uh, next question, also from Dodzor. Horizon canopies from Iconic Masters are currently thirty three ninety nine SCG. Will they go any lower? Maybe a little. Probably not too much. Although Iconic Masters still at Walmart in places, so the supply is still out there. But I can't imagine they go significantly lower than that. All right. Next question. Mono Green Stompy from Rivals of Ixalan. Luminous Bonds slash Impale. Am I the only one who doesn't want to live in a world where pacifism slash murder are too powerful to reprint in standard? So we have pacifism at three mana, murder at four mana in Rivals of Ixalan. So the best reason I heard for this was that Wizards wants dinosaurs to have a chance, and if you print too much cheap removal, especially for limited, it would be really hard to make dinosaurs playable. So I'm just going to cross my fingers and hope that this is a set-specific thing to make dinosaurs work, and that we'll have murders and pacifisms again in Dominaria. All right, I agree. Last question. Samson 533, when brewing for modern uh, with access to add counter magic, how do you decide what counters to include? Logic Knot versus Reman versus Cryptic versus Mandalik. So many options, I often can't figure out in deck text why people choose one over the other. Oh, that's actually a really good question, and it really just depends on your deck. Cryptic is a little bit expensive for anything except hardcore control decks, especially with Snapcaster. Uh, you need the Delve ability to make Logic not worth it. Mana Leak is kind of fallen out of favor behind Logic Knot recently, so most decks have been using Logic Knot. And then Remand usually actually shies away from hardcore control decks and is more for tempo-y style decks. If that, Hopefully that helps a little bit at least. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, basically, each counterspell is good at a different point in the game. Uh, maybe, so Mana Leak is good early, Logic Knot uh, is good slightly early to later, Remand is only good early and it helps you dig into other cards, Cryptic is only good late because you have to get to 4 mana and it's triple blue. Uh, so I usually just start with uh, Remand's and mana leaks, and then adjust accordingly, depending on what kind of decks uh, you're trying to actually build. So that's all our fish meal for this week, Seth. Uh, so thank you to everyone for sending them in. If you have questions, send them to the hashtag MDGFishMail, and we'll get to your questions on air. And uh, I think that brings us to the end of the cast, so kind of a long one, but we had tons of fish mail and tons to talk about, so... I think anything else on the way out the door today, Richard? Uh, no, I think now we just digest the spoilers and start speculating for the next Pro Tour, which happens at the beginning of February, and it's a modern Pro Tour. I'm excited for it. It's going to be awesome. So we'll see. Uh, fingers crossed with the band and restricted announcement. Lots of modern stuff to come. So anyway, everyone, this is uh, the MTG Goldfish podcast crew signing out for episode 154. We'll be back next week with another one. Until then, uh, we'll talk to you soon.